With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What's up, all of you beautiful people? And welcome back to the All Eyes Podcast, Season 2, Episode 3. My name is Robert Donaldson, and you can follow me on Twitter at RobDFB. And as always, I'm joined by my phenomenal multi-talented co-host Thad Nelson who you can find on Twitter at tnels20 and man oh man the week is finally here it's game week Iowa football Indiana coming to Iowa City fans are back in Kinnick I mean this sort of feels a little bit surreal I guess right oh it feels like we've waited so long to get to the start of the season and now it's it's right here in front of us there will be fans in Kinnick there will be legal beer sales in Kinnick. Um, it's going to be quite a wild ride and, and kicking off right away with Big Ten play. So um, what a way to jump in. Yeah, and you know, it's not just like a regular Miami of Ohio or, you know, some small group of five kind of team. It's it's a ranked top 20 Indiana team. And, you know, before Tom Allen came to Indiana, Indiana only had one winning season in football since 1994, and they've had two straight winning seasons. So obviously his impact is is very clear and obvious. It's not one of those things that um, can be, I guess, misconstrued or um, overlooked. And if there's one thing for certain, this is the best looking Indiana football team that I've seen personally in the past six or so years since I've started covering college football in the Big Ten. And it's not even close. You know, they have so many talented players whether it's quarterback Michael Penix Jr. or at receiver with Ty Freifogel, and they have guys like Micah McFadden, Taiwan Mullen on the secondary, and also a number of potentially impact transfers just that just came into the program this year. So there's a lot to focus on with this Indiana team. It's a team that came in, you know, started last year with a bang. You know, that video of Penix diving into the end zone or, you know, with their upset victory at the time, at least, of Penn State. And then later in the year, we kind of found out what Penn State was. you know. And then they have that classic game that they kind of go down and back and forth, not necessarily ahead, but kind of back in in the game with Ohio State. And then they score late to kind of make that close. And then all of a sudden, the quarterback goes down. And then they have this brutal game where they win uh, against Wisconsin. So it's a team that brings a lot back, has a lot to be excited about. You know, your quarterback coming back off of an ACL injury, but was fantastic last year. One of the best wide receivers in the Big Ten as well. And as you mentioned, playmakers on defense. It's a defense that was very opportunistic last year, made a lot of plays. And it's going to be, you know, a wild game to start off the season for the Hawkeyes. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I do like doing um, before, I guess, any Iowa football game is I'll go to like the opposing team blogs and the opposing team, I guess, sites that cover um, that team. And I just love listening or watching, if it's a video, just what people are saying and how they're sort of directing the storylines and what they personally believe are the storylines for this game. A lot of the times I, I find myself just like, you're focusing on the wrong thing or I completely disagree or think you're off base with your analysis or something like that. 
And one of the points this year that I found super interesting that like nobody's talking about, everybody's just kind of glazing over is, you know, how Michael Penix is going to come out psychologically. You know, he's suffered now three straight season ending injuries. Um, Last year was the ACL that he tore two years prior in the same knee, you know, and the previous year was a shoulder injury. So those are significant injuries. And, you know, we talked about last season with like Petrus, you know, and how the quarterback position, there's so much nuance and there's so much going on play by play. And at times it can just feel like overwhelming, you know, whether the defense is doing something that, you know, force that or not. Um, and if you're Michael Penix Jr., you have three straight years, you suffered that kind of injury and, you know, just studying him a core piece of his ability as a passer. And he's not, like a big time running threat, but he is a mobile guy. Um, and you have to wonder how comfortable he's going to be moving outside the pocket, isolating himself in passing situations, or maybe when he does do those scramble kind of things, how much edge is he bringing on the end of runs? You know what I mean? Is he willing to finish off a play and lower the shoulder like he's done in the past? Or is he going to be sort of afraid of taking that hit? And what happens when he does take that hit? Those are great points because I'm not so concerned with the time away from the ACL tear. Like that time frame, the ACLs had plenty of time to heal. Um, I expect him to be 100% in terms of just pure physical health. But the mental side is really interesting, especially when it's a knee he's already injured. When it's a player who doesn't necessarily scramble for a lot of run yards, but uses his mobility to slide in the pocket to give himself extra time. And last year he needed that. Like their offensive line play was not good. And a quarterback that's had that many injuries, you know, now all of a sudden, if you're not trusting your line play and haven't had a lot of time to develop a great, you know, feel back there since that injury, that's really something to look at because he's got all the talent. That's never been the issue. But can he make that progression um, and trust it right away is going to be something we really have to watch, especially early on in the game. I feel like if you let him get comfortable, you kind of forget about it. But if early on, if he's facing that pressure, worried about scrambling or stepping up, then it becomes a major issue for game one. Yeah, and you know, injuries like this, whether it's like a neck injury or a back injury or knee injury, players talk about it all the time. You know, your body might feel good. The trainers might be telling you, you're clear, you're all good to go, full strength, 100%. But some part of your psyche, your psyche sort of has to catch up to how your body's actually feeling. You know, one of the bigger ones, I think, um, that kind of represent this to be true, I don't know if you remember Marcus Lattimore from South Carolina um, back in, what was it, 2011, 2012, whatever it was, Heisman caliber running back, potential first-round talent, suffered a knee injury, comes back the next year, starts again really strong, gets another knee injury, and then two years later, after some rehab with the 49ers, the trainers are telling him, you're good to go. And he's looking like he's going to get his first game action and, you know, carries an actual game since that previous injury. And what does he do? He literally doesn't show up to the game, doesn't call anybody, and just leaves the sport as a player forever. And again, same thing happened this past week with NFL tight end Zach Miller. He got signed by the Seahawks the next day he retired. Um, This was about after a year and a half of rehab as well for him. You know, there's just so much of the psyche part of football that if you're afraid to get hit, you're not going to have the same edge that you did as a player once beforehand. Good. I mean, you can't say it any better, especially when it's a multiple 
injury situation like this knee is. You know, and you've talked about he's lost the end of three seasons or three seasons have ended because of injury and now twice because of the same ACL. And, you know, sometimes it's not just even going out in the whole game, but like you tweak it or you feel it once and now it's in your head. You know, it could be at any point in the game, he just feels the slightest twinge and it goes from feeling really, really confident to, you know, that's on the front of his mind. Like there's nothing else he's thinking of other than, is this knee okay? You know, have I done it again? Or what's going on with it? And that, you know, for a quarterback, if you are not 100% focused on what's in front of you and what's going on around you in that game, you're just not going to be successful. Yeah. And, you know, not to mention, um, every single time I see a video on the, whether it's the Big Ten Network or um, an Indiana media site where they're sort of interviewing the coaches, they keep bringing up that on the sidelines during practice, he's testing the knee just like doing sprints down sidelines, testing the knee. That doesn't sound like somebody who's like, yeah, nothing's wrong. Like I'm, I'm fully healthy, regained everything. And I'm, I'm back ready to go. Yeah. You know, you know, it's, it's interesting because you see injuries like that. You see guys kind of reach down and they kind of wiggle their knee or, you know, you see that sometimes guys will just kind of shake the leg or do a little thing. So as you said, if he's doing that just at practice all the time, that's it's definitely on his mind and he's not feeling comfortable yet and you know he's not over it and when he gets to the first game does it kind of lose that self and you know you're in the game you don't think about it maybe but not a great sign if if that's what's going on just in the day-to-day practice yeah and i guess it's turning your um turning the focus i guess away from just his potential psychological issues and just recovery on the knee what do you think of him as just a player? Because a lot of people, PFF included, are billing him as the best quarterback in the Big Ten. And people are saying, you know, he's in a tier by himself at the moment. Um, one of the better, obviously, that puts him in the conversation for one of the better quarterbacks in the entire country. So what are your thoughts on just Michael Penix Jr., the player, um, knee injury aside? When I watch him, what I see is somebody who has all the tools that you want to see from a quarterback. Um Good arm, good accuracy, uh, super confident with where he'll put the ball and where he will throw. Uh, Not a super accurate quarterback, but he'll take shots. He'll throw into tiny windows. He loves the back shoulder pass. You know, we're going to talk about his connection with uh, Ty Freifogel. And, you know, that's a play that they want to go to all the time. Uh, That connection off that back shoulder, even when he's covered. So he's somebody that will force the ball into spots that maybe do not appear to be open. And he's one of those kind of, you know, boom or bust it a lot of times. There's times he looks fantastic, times where he looks like the best quarterback in the Big Ten. And there's other times where he looks like, honestly, what you would expect sometimes from an Indiana quarterback, you know, where accuracy is an issue, decision making is an issue, um, footwork can be an issue. So you know, from his past, it's it's just kind of all over the map, depending on when you click play on, you know, the film. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. When you watch Indiana's offense, at least last year specifically, they look a lot like what Nebraska tries to do, but just better. You know, a lot of swing passes, a lot of quick timing routes. But what they do do, or what they do implement um, more than Nebraska is they implement a lot of bunch formations, right? I, I don't know if you how much of the offense you actually watched, but it just felt like every single route combination or play that they had designed up 
were just like zone burners where they're trying to cross up the zone corners and safeties or linebackers and just try to have them sort of make mistakes in coverage. Um, and I thought that was pretty interesting because it's kind of like one of those gun and run kind of teams. Um, you see a lot of it from Iowa, Ohio State over the years in the Big Ten. That's one of the teams I guess you can also compare it to that has had success with it in the Big Ten. Um, Michael Penix Jr. just alone, though, like, like you just said, confidence is definitely not lacking. Um, I kept writing the word gunslinger to define certain plays that he was doing because, all right, for first off, just so we're probably going to get into this at some point, but Indiana's O-line is awful. At least last year it was. And almost every single play, you know, the interior was getting blown up. There were, the edge was getting blown up. And I mean, he couldn't even take a five-step drop without having to slide to his right or slide to his left away from pressure. And so half of these big highlight throws that you see him make are like falling off his back foot and throwing it sidearm or run, throw, throwing on the run and all these kinds of things. So, you know, at some points I'm like, is he a gunslinger or is he just kind of trying to avoid getting tackled? <laughs> because that's it really feels like that. <laughs> the line does him no favors, as you mentioned. He was under duress so often last year. And yeah, we don't really know a lot of times if that's just kind of his mentality or if he's just kind of throwing it up for a prayer because he has no other options. Um, so I think those are good points. Gunslinger was a perfect term. You know, that I say the same thing. I see the same thing. It's like he's going to take his shots downfield. He's going to attempt to throw his guys open even when they're covered and he's going to trust his receivers and he's got a really good one in Ty Freifogel. Yeah, um let's talk about Ty Freifogel. I mean, this guy is definitely a player. Definitely an athlete. You know, I when I watch him play, he really does remind me at least about the routes that he runs as like a Amir Smith-Marset, but he just has an extra gear with the ball in his hands like I don't know if you watched some of his catches against Ohio State, but he would catch the ball and he would have he'd be out angled by three or four yards and would just burst by guys. And this is Ohio State. Their secondary is not slow. <laughs> I don't have to even know who the secondary players were. They're not slow. Um, I bet they run four four and sub four fours. Um, and Ty Freifogel was burning them. Um, but yeah, you know, going back to the offensive line. They added a graduate transfer, or not graduate transfer, but a, a sophomore transfer from Michigan, Zach Carpenter, who I don't think has any in-game action from my knowledge, but has to be better. I mean, it has to be better than what they've had there at center in the past two years. Um, across that offensive line, though, there are not a lot of bright spots. You know, and their left tackle, who played it, I've read he played close to at 390 pounds last year. They say he looks great. He's they say he's listed. I think he's listed at 362, and Jeez. I would bet he's all of that. But man, he really struggled to move last year, and maybe with 30 pounds gone, you know, he's a little bit more agile. But you know, I think he's six seven six. I mean, he's a monster of a player at left tackle, which Penix Jr. is a lefty. So that is from his front side at that left tackle position. So that's something to think about. But he didn't move well. And like you said, that that offensive line is brutal to watch. It, it Honestly, watching them kind of reminds me of what we saw this last weekend uh, for the Illinois-Nebraska yeah. game. Where just offensive lines and pass protection were just getting 
blown up, especially through the middle, you know, just getting that interior pressure right in the quarterback's face. Um, but going back to Freifogel, you know, you watch him and you see somebody who in the open field is dynamic, makes a ton of contested catches, you know, uses his body really, really well. He's able to go up, you know, those back shoulder passes. He had two touchdowns last year on back shoulder plays. Um, and I think he averaged close to 40 yards on that type of play where he just uses his body. Big guy, 6'2", 200 plus pounds, goes up, makes contested catches and shields you away and runs a really nice route. You know, he's not going to do a ton of, you know, things with his routes, but man, he's dynamic when he gets the ball and he can get the ball when he's covered. You know, he's one of those guys that uh, will make a play despite where the defense is positioned. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, watching last year's team, even despite how bad that offensive line was and them not being able to hold up and the passing game as a whole pretty much being geared to just kind of quick timing routes, um, east west, just get the ball in players' hands kinds of things, they took a fair amount of deep shots. And I think a lot of that can be credited to Michael Penix Jr. just being a, a good athlete who can sort of navigate the pocket and extend the play outside of the pocket um, and that's also, you know, not to go back to, uh, Michael Penix Jr. again, but in these practice videos, I keep seeing where he's, you know, testing the knee or whatever he's all and when he's taking game reps or practice reps at quarterback, he has a, a big bulky brace on, um, his right knee or his left knee. I can't remember which one, but on the, the knee that he injured. And it kind of reminded me of CJ Beathard, his last year at Iowa. Do you remember how? During that Rose Bowl run, C.J. Beathard, no brace, was just, we could characterize him as kind of a gunslinger, always throwing the ball outside the pocket, um, kind of navigating the pocket really well. And when he did tuck it and run, he wasn't like not nimble. You know, he was pretty straight line, decently fast for a quarterback, and he could pick up yards that way. Michael Banks Jr. is kind of the same way. So you have to wonder how much of escapability he's going to potentially lose like C.J. Beathard did in his final year with the brace. And that's something also I kind of want to look at, too. It is. I looked it up while you were talking about it. It was that it is that lead, that right knee for him. You know, so as he's stepping forward, it's it's that knee. And, you know, it's that leg that if you go to step, you know, you're stepping up in the pocket or moving around that you're taking that step. That's where the defenders are coming from. So he's, you know, it's he can say he's 100 percent and he can say he trusts it we'll know come that afternoon on Saturday really how much he trusts it, especially if I was able to generate some pressure uh, up the middle uh, or even from the outside kind of collapsing him in. Yeah, and now that we kind of talked about the passing game, uh, we talked about the offensive line, we have to touch on the fact that Indiana's rushing attack last year, even with a veteran running back um, and Stevie Scott, you know, they were one of the worst Big Ten teams in terms of rushing um, in the conference. They averaged 108 yards per game. That was 12th. Yards per rush was 3.13 cumulative. That's 13th. They only had seven rushes over 20 yards. That was 10th in the conference. And they had zero rushes over 30 yards, which was dead last or tied for dead last. Um, but in that regard, you know, the offensive line still looks probably predictably going to be bad again. But they do have um, a grad transfer from USC. Some people might recognize that name just because when he was there in year one as a freshman, uh, he went 
crazy. I mean, averaging nearly six yards per carry. He was a bell cow, 1,400 yards of total offense. Steven Carr, former five-star running back. I believe um, he was number three in that class with Najee Harris and um, Cam Akers from Florida State. Both guys went got drafted in the first two rounds of the NFL draft. Um, this guy is obviously very talented, and they just li- listed a, a depth chart yesterday putting him as a starting running back so what are your thoughts on this indiana rushing attack well last year was so bad as you mentioned i mean just nowhere to go no line didn't know what they were doing running backs were missing cuts just really really bad last year this year obviously with Carr, it should be improved hawkeye fans might also recognize that name he played in the uh 2019 holiday bowl against iowa had five carries a touchdown um, I think he had around 25, 23, 24 yards um, on those five carries and kind of one goal line touchdown. So big athletic back, you know, uh, Coach Allen said that, you know, he made it easy to make the decision to make him the starting guy to, to make him number one. So, you know, I don't know what that says in comparison to where they were at, but he definitely, you know, has the pedigree and the and experience, you know, to be a good back for them. And, and for that offense, they need to have some running game to help alleviate that pressure from the passing game, you know, from Penix Jr. making plays with his legs, from Fry Fogel, from the other receivers, and just make defenses not load up against the pass and actually have to commit some players to the run game. Yeah, no, I agree. And one thing that I will say about the yards per rush, 3.13, I almost kind of refuse to believe that any power five running back is that bad. You know, like to, I feel like most running backs, if they have a decent offensive line, are going to average a slight tick above that. Um, and so you have to wonder, even though Stephen Carr is coming in and he's definitely a talented player, he is coming off an injury, um, and that offensive line is going to do him no favors. He's not a guy that, in my opinion, is a huge creator, like kind of like an Akram Wadley type. You know, he's not that much of a huge creator unless he's getting downhill first. So maybe pistol reps for him um, just to get him, you know, moving that direction, um, I think could benefit him. But if it's just going to be sort of like outside zone runs or um, just kind of make a play once you get to that second level, he's not going to get to that second level all that often. (laughs) He's going to have a heck of a time, you know, with if that run game or if that blocking is at all how it was last year. You know, he's just going to be running into offensive linemen's backs and running into a corral defense, you know. So it doesn't matter how talented you are. And he's not one of those guys that's going to make guys miss in the hole. It's not like an Akram Wadley when he was at Iowa and he could pretty much guarantee to make the first guy miss. You know, he's a physical back. He's got good speed. He's got fine agility. But he's not a guy that's going to make multiple players miss in the backfield. You know, when he gets ahead of steam downfield, maybe, but... Yeah, it's just, it's hard to imagine him, you know, just one player at the running back position totally changing that run game. You know, I, I still expect it's going to be a weakness of theirs. Yeah, um, I'm right there with you. That said, is there anything else you want to talk about with this Indiana offense? I know the one of the more fun parts about this Indiana team is the defense, so I'm excited to get into that. Yeah, the only thing with the offense, you mentioned earlier those bunch sets, what they do with their pass game kind of reminds me of Iowa's run game in terms of it's just constantly a numbers game. You know, they're just constantly trying to create that numbers advantage 
whether it's trying to make the zone defense, as you mentioned, get crossed up or just outnumber you or uh, somehow create a one-on-one. They're just really working really what Iowa does with their run game into that's how they incorporate their pass game. They're just constantly trying to create a numbers advantage. Um, And luckily for Iowa, Iowa has a great defense and a really experienced back seven. So it's going to be a really interesting you know, chess match on that end to see how those two groups do and really probably come down to who makes the most one-on-one plays. Are Iowa defenders making those one-on-one tackles or is Indiana able to make a guy miss? But, you know, let's get to their defense. Shockingly, talk about an Indiana defense that has some has some real dudes back there. Yeah, uh, and they only added, you know, um, not only by uh, graduate transfer or transfer, but Marcelino Ball or Masol, Masol, let me try to pronounce his name correctly. Marcelino McCary, McCrary Ball. Um, he's sort of like, I guess, what Dane Belton is for the Hawkeyes. Sort of that almost slot corner, outside linebacker kind of role. Um, almost borderline safety at times. He's coming back from an injury. He's a total athlete. I mean, you watch this guy move. He just, I. it's like I refuse to believe he's under the, like near 230, 240 pounds. Because he moves better than a lot of running backs in the Big Ten or across the country. Um, he's an exciting addition. But they also added Ryder Anderson from Ole Miss. And he's now the starting D-end. So there you go. Add something to the defensive line. Again, on the defensive side of the ball, the D-line for uh, Indiana was also very bad. Um, it was Pancake City if you watched their defensive line uh, last year. I mean, they were just getting bullied around. So maybe Ryder Anderson provides a little bit of depth there. They also added Jaron Handy, um, a junior transfer from Auburn. Um, And he's sort of going to be in that stand-up outside linebacking kind of pass rushing role. Um, They call it bull, but I mean, it's sort of similar to a Leo or an an elephant, if you know those kind of terms. Um, And then, you know, the star guy that everybody wants to point to on Indiana's defense Micah McFadden and uh, Taiwan Mullen at corner. So Micah McFadden is one of the uh, best linebackers in the Big Ten right now. Um, I'm, I'm excited to dive into him. I want your opinions on sort of these guys before we start getting specific. But, you know, there's a lot of guys on this team that can do a lot of different things. Um, force turnovers, stop the run, uh, pass rush, and just sort of fly over the, all over the ball. So uh, what, what's your first takeaway when you do look at Indiana's defense? First word that comes to mind when I think about this defense, and especially with their top two players, in my opinion, in McFadden and Mullen, is they are aggressive. They are, you said, you know, blitz happy from some of their best players. Those guys get after it. Um, Mullen will take take shots going for interceptions, you know, and trying to knock the ball away. And they are just really, really aggressive. Um, last year, looked up uh, they had a blitz rate of 47.3 percent so they're blitzing almost half of the plays and it's coming from all over as you mentioned they kind of have some of those guys they call it their bull where they're just kind of moving pieces around uh they have you know an even man front but the one d end is going to play standing up you know he's not going to be down in a three-point stance so they have him up so he can drop back a little quicker so they can mix, mix some of those blitz packages up. So I just think really aggressive in how they pursue the ball, how they attack the ball in the air with their corners, um, their blitz packages and schemes, and just 
every time I see them, I think, you know, they're just all after the ball. You know, if you have the ball and it's a, a group of defenders, they're trying to rip it out. You know, every chance they get to create a turnover, and it's something they lived on last year, was creating turnovers because they they don't get after, as you mentioned, with the defensive line. They're not going to get to the quarterback a lot with just their core guys. They're going to use those really good athletes in the secondary and in the linebacker's position to create those pressure situations and make the offense make mistakes. And man, last year they capitalized them all, all the time. Yeah, you know, last year Indiana's defense was first in sacks, first in INTs, and first in takeaways. Um, and what's crazy is their leading sack or their lead sack guy was not a defensive end. It wasn't somebody that was lining up in their bowl for me or at bowl for them. It was Micah McFadden with six. So an off ball inside linebacker was their leading sack guy. Um, he was also their leading tackles for loss guy. And, you know, that's crazy because when you really look at him, he's lining up like three or four yards back from the line of scrimmage almost every single snap for them. And he's still putting up those kind of numbers. So what does that tell you? Well, you know, what you just said, they're crazy aggressive. And I don't know what it is about guys like Tom, like Tom Allen, who are just defensive minded and just very amped up and psycho almost. But <laughs> but Tom Allen, 47 percent blitz rate last year, according to PFF. And you sent you sent that over to me and I appreciated that, um, you know, that is abnormally high. You know, almost 50% of the snaps, you are sending at least one guy on a blitz. And they're coming from a lot of different angles. They're coming from the nickel. They're coming from outside corner. They're coming from inside linebacker. They're coming from safety. I mean, these guys are not afraid to attack you from literally every angle. Yeah, <clears throat> they had McFadden's blitz rate at 44%. So, I mean, you're talking about a middle linebacker who, on two out of five plays, is blitzing. You know, he's coming. And sometimes... Uh, those are run blitzes where he's trying to shoot a gap and use his athleticism to beat an offensive lineman, to, you know, to get that uh, a gap or he's trying to shoot inside. And sometimes he's coming for the quarterback. So those guys have the green light, really, to just go make plays. And last year, you talked about those turnover numbers and the sack numbers. You know, they made them last year, you know, whether it was McFadden or or Mullen um, I'm interested to see, you mentioned they have some guys coming in to help on the defensive line because their defensive line wasn't that great last year, but they did have one guy that did go on to the NFL. So they do lose some size, you know, some 300 pounders in there that could move and one was good enough to get a contract. So, you know, can Iowa get to that second level? You know, for Indiana, we talked about the other way, you know, can Iowa create pressure against their offensive line? You know, the opposite is really going to be important for Iowa. Like, can those linemen just get to that second level and make it so guys like McFadden don't have free runs at the the quarterback or the running back? Yeah, no, you just hit, hit it right on the head. And, you know, talking about, you, you brought up how their defensive line wasn't applying pressure, and they sort of supplemented that with just blitzing almost 50% clip, right? So... This is where it becomes really interesting because I've been on now two Indiana podcasts and the question I get asked is, you know, do you think that Indiana's success from last season is sustainable? Um, I'm just going to say this and this might irk some Indiana fans if they end up listening to this podcast, but the teams that usually blitz at high percentages are the teams that suck. 
just traditionally, that's just the truth. I mean, you look at Syracuse, they had no pass rushing last year. They were up in the 40 percentile. You look at all these teams that underperform on defense and give up a boatload of points. They're in the 40%, 50% range on blitz percentage. And, you know, when you're blitzing, just as a core tenant, right, you're either using it to complement or supplement something. You know, in the case of Iowa last year, we noted how there's a lot more blitzing involved. But they're still hanging around a 26% clip rate on blitzes. The reason they started to blitz a lot more last year is because of the guys that they had the defensive line, Davion Nixon, Chauncey Golston. They were the offensive lines that they were facing were sliding the protection over to those guys, leaving just these massive lanes. So how did they sort of, you know, keep offensive lines from just double teaming those guys every single snap and sliding protection their way? Well, we're just going to take the free lane that you give us, but we're not going to do it every single play and sort of keep you off balance and make those blitzes really count. Um, you know, most of the blitzes that Indiana sent last year weren't intelligent blitzes. You know, they were in clear directive kind of blitzes. You know, the difference between those two kind of styles, you know, is what it separates a team like Indiana from a Clemson or Alabama or some of these teams you see in the NFL, like the Baltimore Ravens, where they implement a lot of delayed blitzes or a lot of bluff blitzes or reactionary base blitzes like green dog blitzes that sort of hinge on an assigned player on the offense you know, moving in a certain direction or staying home into pass protect. With Indiana, the pre-snap call is usually no matter what, you know, it's a blitz designed to do something, whether it's to help a, a, a stunt with a defensive tackle and just to hit the guard or the center on a blitz so you free up that, that loop around for a pass rush, or you're literally just blitzing so that you can try to apply pressure by a linebacker shooting the gap or a nickel corner sliding in um, behind the left tackle's back foot. You know, it's going to be interesting to see if that sort of thing um, where they're just blitzing at 50 percent clip rate and leaving their secondary kind of susceptible will actually hold up this season. Perfect points on that, because you nailed it. They are a team that they're just sending guys and they're lucky last year. A lot of those premier athletes and their premier players made plays for them because they got out of position a lot. And we're in situations where if it's not for one or two guys just making really spectacular plays, where <clears throat> it's a really big play the other direction. And those are the sort of things, again, somebody like Iowa, that if Brian Ferentz can dial up the right play calls or if they can scheme the right situations, hey, we see this look, this is how we're going to counter at counter that, then it's going to be some really big plays for the Iowa offense. And if there's one thing when you're playing Iowa's offense, like you just don't want to give those big plays because with Peaches from last year, he wasn't consistent enough to hurt you and take, I'm going to get five, I'm going to get seven. They need some of those big plays to really push the offense and continue to make it grow. So when you look at their defense and, and how many turnovers they created, it was really boom or bust on those. And the other thing I'll mention with this is they had a really high rate of fumble recoveries like they forced a bunch last year but they had a high rate and those those are statistics that especially people who uh, bet on games for a living they look at because those usually even out like the recovery rate is very close to 50 50 on a fumble you know and over a season you know it might skew one way or another but you look at 
a two, three, four season stretch, and it's going to probably even its way out. So now it doesn't mean just because it was skewed their way last year, it couldn't happen again this year, but they were opportunistic about creating some of those fumbles, but they were also very fortunate that a higher percentage than expected ended up their way. I want to toss it to you again real fast. How effective do you think this blitzing attack and this crazy style of just being ultra aggressive is going to affect a team like Iowa with Spencer Petrus and sort of new people at both tackle spots? The best part is who's making those offensive line calls each time. And I'll tell you, Tyler Linderbaum is making those offensive line calls. So for Iowa, the huge advantage they have is the best center in college football is making the decisions about what the line is going to do. And he has great experience. You know, he is unbelievably talented as a player. He's tough. He's technical. But he is incredibly smart as well. And that doesn't mean Minnesota or Indiana can't fool him um, from time to time. It doesn't mean that that can't happen. But from the start, they are going to have great directive from what Tyler Linderbaum tells the offensive line to do. And then from there, it's just guys making plays. And we've talked before, we love the interior. Even though Kyler shots out for a few weeks with a foot injury, we still really love the interior. And if they can handle those switches, you know, th- those tackle positions, and they are, you know, green out there. They don't have a lot of experience at tackle. But really where you get in trouble more often than not on those, you know, switch situations is the interior player not picking it up, you know, not getting handed off. So if they can work through those things, um, I think they've got a chance to handle them as well as anybody. You know, if a team's going to send a ton of guys, they're going to get through occasionally. But if you can make the right call, provide enough time for Spencer Petrus to make a read and let those playmakers on offense because this offense has playmakers get them the ball with some green space around them and this Iowa offense could do big things. Yeah, you brought up Kyler shot, which is obviously unfortunate. He got injured bailing hay, uh, which is the most Iowa thing I've only in, only Iowa. in Iowa, honestly. Um, <laughs> but still, like you said, even with Kyler shot out, you know, he was out a large amount of games last season. Well, large amount, relatively speaking. There's only like eight games total. But he was still out, and a lot of the guys that stepped in his place looked very good. Um, I would honestly say, even with Kyler shot out, Iowa has probably one of the best core interiors on the offensive line in all of the country. And I do think, again, to your point, Iowa has kind of this unique advantage against blitz-heavy teams, especially one like Indiana, Um, The other teams in the Big Ten or other teams that they play just don't inherently have because Iowa will literally set up their offense pre-snap outside of the huddle, making checks, sliding protections, um, gauging where pressure is going to be coming from, gauging where people are going to blitz from. Um, And they also, at their offense, with Brian sort of just engineering it, a lot of these wide receivers, and you have to wonder how often this is going to happen this year, but in the past years with Brian, Side adjusts are a very popular thing with Brian's offenses. So receivers are going to read something that the safety does or that his corner does, and he will run in basically get what's called, I guess, an option route um, away from, I guess, the the pre-designed or what you actually want the route to be. That's going to be very effective against a team that blitzes and you never know where that pressure is coming from because 
you have 11 guys on the offense sort of gauging where each player on the defense is at a given time. And that's where I think you're going to see this offense and specifically Spencer Petras make a big jump because he did not get a spring. He did not get a summer. I mean, we've hashed that out from the previous year, how he had to just jump in. And part of that is, you know, you're not comfortable with all of those other things that are happening around you. So your decision making is a little slower. You're maybe not trusting your eyes when you see something. And now they've had all of last year and a real off season to work through that with the receivers. You know, there's a ton of experience from those top guys. You look at, you know, Tyrone Tracy Jr. and Nico Regani and Sam Laporta now. Those guys have played a ton of snaps, have been in the program for a while. And obviously there's a couple young guys that are going to be stepping in. With We're expected to see a lot of snaps for Keegan Johnson. And it sounds like Arland Bruce is in the rotation as well. So we're going to see some young guys get those. But both of those freshman receivers that I mentioned were here or were in Iowa City in the spring. You know, So they went through spring ball. They went through summer. They've gone through fall camp. They're not fully new players at this point and obviously they've earned the trust of the coaching staff because it sounds like they're in you know all the way and we're probably going to see them get I would guess double digit snaps for both of them yeah and you know this does seem like a game where I was going to try to pass a lot you know you think about um what was it Northwestern when Spencer Peters threw 50 yard or 50 pass attempts last year Northwestern's defense is kind of similar to how Indiana operates where they are kind of when they do blitz they blitz from a lot of varying angles um not just you know the inside linebacker shooting the B gap or the A gap or whatever um and so that's going to be cause like I think Brian's sort of game plan is going to be those quick timing patterns up the not like through the middle down the seam um Tyron Tracy running on on these cross motions across the field and I you know you have to wonder if he might get caught in that trap of just, you know, heaving it every single time, you know, every single play. Well, you mentioned those pressures coming up the middle. <clears throat> That's going to open it up for those crossers for Tracy. That's going to open it up for Sam Laporta, you know, in the middle of the field. I'm interested to see what does Iowa do with Tyler Goodson out of the backfield? You know, do they keep him in on some of those blitz protections? Do they leak him out? You know, because it's kind of dangerous the way they blitz to maybe have him do the uh, check for pressure. Okay, I don't see anybody. Now I release. I think it's got to be all or nothing, probably, unless it's like a really long time back there. That It's like, okay, I know he's releasing. I know I've got him in the flat, or I know he's protecting for me. Because the way they blitz, it's going to be hard for those running backs to you know step up to read and then get out of there in time. So I'm really interested to see what does Iowa decide to do with those running backs what do they decide to do with the tight ends? Do they play a lot of two tight ends and kind of mush things up in the middle? Do they spread it out and get kind of wide to try to extend those gaps that make those corner blitzes, those nickel blitzes, those safety blitzes a little more noticeable? Because if they are noticeable, I like the chances of the Iowa receiving core and the skill players winning some of those one-on-one battles. Yeah, and if anything, you know, going up against a defense that blitzes you like crazy, there is going to be um, an opportunity for a lot of creative sort of play designs. You know, what we've seen in the past, and this has become sort of a, a popular theme throughout college football over just the past two years, 
the running back vertical or the running back go route um, from the backfield. This is becoming very popular because, you know, you think he's staying in to pass protect or uh, he's just selling a play action and he's just taking off past these linebackers who might be, you know, drawn up a bit. It, it does kind of seem like a game that, if, you know, first game of the year, Brian's coming in after all these months of not playing a game that he might have some really creative things to implement. And I'm ex- I'm excited, too, to see what that he kind of draws up. Yeah, I could see them going for those choices where <clears throat> Goodson comes out of the backfield and maybe early in the game, he kind of veers off to the left, veers off to the right, and he just gives that linebacker one shake, one step to the outside, and he's down the seam. You know, and if you've got the wide receivers out wide, going vertical and you've got him or Laporta in the middle of the field, there's just going to be too much space. And if that guy missteps at all thinking, okay, he's going out to the flat or things, you know, that vertical, that Texas route, um, those are going to be real weapons if they're vacating the middle of the field to try to generate pressure that their front four can't pressure on their own. And just so you guys know, um, Thad is battling allergies to the max today it's basically his jordan flu game but for podcasting um and he's he's pulling it together really well if you could see him right now he's going through it but still doing his thing respect well you know it's it's opening week for all of us and if you know (laughs) if an iowa player is battling some things i guarantee they'd be out there too so uh a little bit of uh allergies and you know just being stuff beyond belief um isn't going to slow me down when we need to talk some Hawkeye football. And uh, I'm just, you know, by Saturday, it won't matter what's going on. I'm going to feel like I'm on cloud nine and, and ready to roll. It's going to be one of those like wake up way before the sun comes up and just sit there thinking about how am I going to get to two thirty. <laughs> All right. Well, now we've talked about the defense. We've talked about the offense. Is there anything else you would like to add on the defense before we go th- through like the overview or give our predictions on how we sort of see this game playing out. I think we hit it. We talked a lot about what Indiana wants to do, who those key players are that you want to keep an eye on, see how they impact the game and talked a little bit about what we think Iowa will do against them. So let's keep it rolling. All right. So I guess I'll throw it to you now. How do you see this game playing out? Whether you want to throw a potential storyline or a prediction for the entire game or just how the style of this game is going to look or, um, you know, how you see this game just going. It's, it's one of those games I was telling somebody else that all last year I was like, man, Indiana, they're getting so much credit for a late game win against Penn State, who was garbage. And the most credit they got <laughs> all year was for losing to Ohio State in a one score game where they scored late to get it from two scores to one score. But like that, they got so much credit for losing to Ohio state and beating Penn state opening week. And I just felt like I don't trust that team at all. And I've mentioned it before. Like I'm not big on coaches that are rah, rah screaming, going crazy on the sideline. I just think that stuff wears off um, as seasons go on. So that said, Knowing this is the first game of the year and like you go through their stuff, it scares me beyond belief because you <laughs> see some of those weapons that they have and you're like, man, they've got a great quarterback. They've got a great receiver. They've got defensive players that make plays. They've got a good kicker. So if it comes down to that, you know, all of a sudden 
you know, they're solid in that situation. It's not like Nebraska walking out their kickers. You know, you're not expecting that Indiana to miss any extra points. So I've been on this absolute roller coaster of like, they're garbage. They're way overrated to this team is talented. They've got some new guys coming in. You know, we've mentioned some transfers from big time programs. Um, I've come around though, like I'm back in on, I just think Iowa has all the pieces. I think Indiana's got a lot of pieces. I think this Iowa football team can have all the pieces. I think they can get good quarterback play. I think having Tyler Linderbaum solidify the interior of the line and get that offensive line unit coming together is huge. Uh, It's a game where Iowa's inexperienced and maybe down from past year's defensive line isn't going to just get absolutely harassed by a super technical offensive line. It's a really big Indiana offensive line, like big in stature, but it's not a very technical or mobile group. So Iowa, I think, can get away with you know not being super athletic because the offensive line isn't very athletic um, either. So I'm... I'm sliding myself to Iowa. I think it's, I would not be surprised if we see a game that is back and forth and we get a big turnover caused by a quarterback trying to make a big play somewhere, you know, where they're trying to force it. It's been a good game. The defenses are kind of trading blows at different times and a quarterback tries to do too much. And we talked about it. There's one quarterback in this game that has a history of sometimes trying to do too much. And I think that's going to slide it to Iowa's way. Yeah, you know, you and I are pretty much on the same page here. Um, Just regarding Indiana and what we think of them as a team. I do think that the excitement factor is definitely real with Indiana. And in college football, excitement, the crowd, you know, those sort of underlying things can sometimes uh, supersede the actual talent on the field, the actual, actual execution because of, just big momentum shifts that you can kind of feel, right? Just one or two plays that just kind of derail uh, what what's a good team, like the winning team has going on or, you know, propels the team that's down the game to really get over that hump and finish out the game. That said, if I'm just looking at Indiana solely based in sort of a vacuum, you know, in my opinion, I talked about it. Blitzing at 50% clip almost is just not sustainable. Um, it's not a sustainable style. And relying on turnovers to sort of facilitate offense and save, you know, points being put up against you isn't sustainable. We've seen it with Iowa over the years when they've had high turnover rates. The next year, the same players, those turnover rates are way down low, almost cut in half sometimes. Um, On top of that, it doesn't matter how good of a play caller or play designer you are on offense. If your offensive line is bad, your foundation is just out the roof and you're sort of relying on almost these heroic kind of plays from a Michael Penix Jr. or a Ty Freifogel to take a 10-yard pass and turn it into 40 yards or something like that. And on the defensive line, you know, it might be even worse comparatively. Uh, and you go back to last year and watch that film on the Indiana D-line and they were just getting put on their backs left and right. Even with a guy that went on to the NFL, Iowa's core interior is one of the strongest in the nation. And they are going to be aggressive, and they really work well in tandem. I think that the defensive line for Indiana is going to get smushed. Um, and, you know, I, I, like I said, 
Indiana's the way they play with these big flashy plays on offense with no offensive line, high blitz rate, relying on high turnover percentages. That's just not a sustainable style to win. And I do think Iowa has a very talented team. So I'm going to take Iowa personally. You know, I, I, it's kind of interesting. I looked at the over-under for this game just because I, I do like looking into the betting side of things. It's set at 45, which would be the second lowest um, uh, total comparatively to Iowa's uh, schedule last year. Um, the only game being under that for points was the blizzard against uh, Wisconsin, set at 41. And in my opinion, you know, if you're like playing into how the odd, odds makers are setting up lines and things like that, you know, putting the total at 45 with a team that scores a lot like Indiana and a team last year in Iowa that scored a lot, it's kind of sort of setting the stage for the fact that Iowa's going to really control this game and limit the amount of times and loud, amount of chances that Indiana is going to have on offense. And have we mentioned that it is in Kinnick Stadium after with fans. all with fans? <laughs> yeah. And let me repeat alcohol sales through three quarters <laughs> like i i just have to keep hammering that home because you this is a perfect concoction of everything you know that place is going to be absolutely ballistic all <laughs> game long you know it's not just going to be stand up for third down it's going to be every single situation um it's going to be nuts in there and you have to think that is only going to help Iowa. You know, those Indiana players are going to have to deal with a rowdy crowd. You know, they're right on top of them. You know, they they didn't have to hear a word all of last year. You know, they went all to those games and did whatever they want, never had a had a crowd heckle them and Iowa City is going to be on top of them from, you know, the moment they step into that stadium for warm-ups. So, I just don't think, you know, we I kind of forgot about that all of last year. I forgot Oh, is Iowa on the road? Is Iowa at home? Because last year, you know, it was a sterile environment no matter where they went. But now we are kicking off the season, kicking off Big Ten play, hosting a top 20 ranked Indiana team in front of a full crowd that will be juiced up. And in a game that we think two teams that have a lot of good players, that can slide the scale just that little bit to tip to Iowa's side. And I think that's where it goes. Yeah, and you mentioned it last year. If you picked a game on the schedule and just quizzed me on, all right, which stadium was that played in? Half the time, I don't think I could tell you. I remember the Penn State game because it was super dark on the field and it looked like they were on a spotlight. Um, other than that, I can't tell you where games were played last year. I'm with you. I, I remember a little bit early in the season, specifically. It's like, okay, I remember the first couple games about where they were located. <clears throat> but overall, like you talk about that middle seat of the part of the season, I, I have no clue where those games were just because it never factored in. You know, it wasn't a part of what we expect in the Big Ten. Like going on the road is such a chore. You go to so many hostile environments, and it just wasn't the case last year. To, so to have that back, um, it's it's just going to be so nice and so fun to see those sights and hear everything going on in Kinnick Stadium. Um, man, I'm ready to go right now. <laughs> well, let's give the gambling people, because, you know, it's legal in Iowa now, let's just give them our picks for the over-under and the spread. Over-under set at 45, spread set at minus 3.5. Um, where, where are you siding on both those, if you had a lean or whatever? 
that the over under number is awfully suspicious as you mentioned being that low Very. you know for Iowa was second in the Big 10 in scoring last year Indiana was racking up ton of points prior to Penix Jr's injury so to see two teams that at that you know averaging around 30 points to think it's going to be this defensive struggle you know has me wondering like what do they know in the desert that I don't know but part of me also says maybe they're just expecting, hey, it's two teams known for their defense. Um, we see an early season game where the offenses aren't quite ready. But I really like the over um, in this. And and I like Iowa covering. I, I was in Indiana lean all, you know, all month leading into this, you know, in terms of I thought they would cover for sure. And I kind of thought maybe they would win. But now I see Iowa winning this by, I think, seven to nine points is where I see Iowa taking advantage of this and just making enough big plays and Indiana, you know, kind of shooting themselves in their foot with the, you know, bust plays, so to speak, and it going Iowa's way. See, with the over-under, I have to take the under because what they, what do they know that we don't know? Because it may, doesn't make any sense. I mean, Iowa's returning a pretty high, high-powered offense, with a running back who could finish in the top three for the Doak Walker, um, a good tight end, a second-year quarterback with a good offensive line. And then you look at Indiana, they returned pretty much every single talent piece and then added um, a center. Uh, they added somebody on the offensive line. They also added Stephen Carr, who could potentially be a high-impact running back and an upgrade, a serious upgrade over last year's uh, group. So what do they know to set it at 45? I have to take the under. This is a hit, this game is going to end at like 24 to, to 10. You know, I, I think Iowa's going to win 24-10. That's my prediction. No, actually, 24-13. We're going to give Indiana two field goals in that one. Um, I do think that they can generate some splash plays, at least get in that range. And then Iowa's defense with their backs against the wall, you know, make some stops. The people in the desert are definitely smarter than I am. So if it's something where I'm like, well, this seems obvious, um, you know, they didn't build those casinos on winners. <laughs> you know, they're <laughs> they're taking their money. Um, so I think that's probably the smart bet. I'm going to go with the stay away um, on this on my <laughs> personal bank account. It'll just stay in there, and I will look at some of the other Big Ten action um, that week to see if I can, you know, boost that boost that role. Yeah, you know, this is, man, I'm so tempted about the under, but that means I would have to pull against Iowa to score points, you know, at some point in the game. That's <laughs> so just, I just no can't fun. Do it. Yeah, it's, 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 life is too short to bet the under, you know. The points are exciting. <laughs> that said, um, do you have anything left to add about this matchup week one? No, I'm just so excited. I'm going to, you know, start the... Morning off, I have my normal morning routine on Saturdays where I, I go in, get a big cup of coffee, you know, kind of find my s- spot uh, around the TV. You know, my daughter will be probably running around trying to distract me, but, you know, 11 o'clock kickoff, going to watch that game, uh, make a plate of nachos, maybe grill up some wings, and just mm. sit down and, and eat a feast and enjoy a Hawkeye victory. That sounds beautiful i can't wait for game day saturdays to be back and you know we only have what is it now we're recording this on a tuesday um and i can't do math at this moment wednesday thursday friday okay four days give or take three um 
that doesn't feel even real. I'm so excited. And yeah, I, I'm hoping Iowa comes out on top, but there's so much talk, you know, and we know how Iowa does in some of these early season matchups where they let us down a bit. Let's not have that be a thing. <laughs> yeah, last year was a nice year, but starting off 0-2 was not ideal. Um, so hopefully the Hawks, you know, on home turf, uh, let's, you know, start off on the right foot, get that big, you know, ranked win to start the season um, and get this season rolling. Man, I just, it's here. You know, it's finally here and uh, let's go. Absolutely. And um, now that we're signing off, we want to thank you guys um, for all the love you guys showed on last week's podcast. We talked about Brian Ferentz, basically shown the spotlight on whether or not he's a good offensive coordinator. If you haven't listened to that one, definitely go check it out. Um, in regards to future podcasts, we will be covering Iowa games leading up to it all year long. Um, and we might throw in some special you know, significant or not significant, but like special unique kind of podcasts, um, in between there as well. So definitely stick with us. Um, you can find us on Spotify, Apple podcasts and Stitcher and all those good things as well as blackheartgoldpants.com. That said, we will see you all in the next podcast. Take it easy.